WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And you probably know this week's guest from his epic run on Batman with Greg Capullo or his Dark Knight's medals crossover at DC. And he's mostly here today to talk about his current and upcoming independent work. It's Scott Snyder. Scott, thanks so much for being here. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, so let's start with the most urgent thing, which is uh, you've got a Kickstarter up right now for a uh, collector's edition of the first issue of Noctera, uh, your upcoming image series with Tony Daniel, uh, which uh, the collector's edition offers a, a backers, a combination script pages and uh, Tony's black and white line art. Uh, you know, we'll talk about the story itself in a bit, but, uh, you know, what made you want to, you know, go this route, use Kickstarter in this way to uh, promote the book? Yeah, the, it, the reasons were really twofold. I mean, uh, on the one hand, uh, Tony and I, we started working on this book a while ago. You know, we, it was an idea that came to me a couple of years ago when my um, now nine-year-old was about seven and he was going through this kind of acute fear of the dark. And it reminded me of how, you know, uh, how uh, intense my own fear of the dark was when I was his age. And I, I had sort of forgotten but um, I had this idea for a story that was really simple, almost like dumb, simple idea, where it's like, uh, what if the earth is plunged into an everlasting night uh, for reasons that no one really understands yet? And that what if this night was as scary as uh, we imagine the dark to be when we're kids? So it's this transformative darkness that if you stay in too long, changes you into a kind of monstrous version of yourself called a shade. Every living thing that stays in the dark too long becomes one of these kind of twisted things. So it's a lot of fun and, and it's like high octane horror. And I pitched it to Tony and we started working on it. Um, and then we uh, talked to Image about doing it uh, and, and we got really excited when they said yes. And what happened was, it was even before COVID, we started to um, think about different business models where on the one hand, when you do a book with a, a creator-owned book with a, a company like Image, um, they sometimes will offer you a page rate, um, they'll offer you an advance, um, but that's recouped against the book itself, you know, when the mm -hmm. book comes out. Um, and even by taking it sometimes, I've, I've always avoided taking, I haven't ever taken one um, uh, because I, they've never, there's no proof that it would drain resources for other books, but I just have that guilt that I feel like mm -hmm. I've done well enough in my career that I feel badly taking anything away if there's going to be money, um, you know, in coffers for, for people coming up and emergent creators there. So Tony and I started talking about the idea of doing something that would allow us to safeguard the book um, financially, but uh, more importantly, would give us a chance to reach out to fans. Um, I had just had a baby uh, and uh, we had, you know, and, and uh, the baby, our, our son to get, not to get too, uh, you know, intimate, but he needed a pretty intense uh, surgery when he was about six months old. He had a craniotomy, his uh, couple seams in his skull closed early. And so it was, it was pretty major and it took him a while to recover. And I really was not planning on going to any cons for quite a while. And so Tony and I decided that what if we started thinking about it then, what if we created something that would take the place of, of kind of going and having to sign the physical book that would allow us to make not only a book that was, um, autographed by us, but that would give people a peek behind the scenes into how a book like this is made. Let them feel part of the team. Um, and then really what happened was, you know, COVID hit. And with COVID coming, both of those aspects, uh, both of those ideas sort of took on really immediate 
importance and a, and a tremendous amount of urgency where on the one hand, uh, from a pragmatic standpoint, a lot of uh, publishers shut down during COVID, retailers shut down, you know, image was shut down for a while. And so in that kind of a circumstance with a book like um, Noctera, uh, you know, we're just sort of in limbo for that period if, because we can't, we can't really get an advance from them. Not, we hadn't asked for one um, or we weren't getting one yet from them, but you couldn't get one in that situation anyway. And then Tony in need of work would probably have to go do work elsewhere. Um, luckily I had, you know, I was able to kind of keep him on the book at that time. Um, but then from the other standpoint, we both really miss going to conventions and meeting fans. And so um, it just brought both those things into really sharp relief where it was like, what if we can do a campaign that on the one hand really is all about um, giving fans access to the, to the process by which we make the book, makes them feel connected to us, uh, allows them really um, unprecedented kind of access to, uh, to our creative collaboration, all that kind of stuff that we usually keep kind of under wraps, make it all fun and out in the open. And then secondarily would allow us to, have make enough money hopefully for the first six issues of the book when you do an indie book if everything's running well and there is no covid and it's being published regularly you usually start to see money and it becomes self-perpetuating if you're lucky mm -hmm. um, or self-sustaining if you're lucky somewhere around issue six of production so issue three when it comes when issue three comes out is when you kind of start seeing royalties but by then you're usually working on about issue six mm -hmm. which is a lot to ask especially in this economy of artists i'm I don't, i've never you know i'm fine i'm not taking anything for the, the book really right now but in terms of art it's a very difficult thing to ask artists to work for that long um you know under risk of something closing down and so for this this gives the campaign would give me enough money hopefully when we, we set it out to do it, that would allow me to pay for Tony, the great colorist on the book, Tameo Mori, both of them are big stars. Uh, the letterer, Darren Bennett, who I've worked <laughs> with a bunch, our editor, Will Dennis, uh, all of it. And um, luckily, so we set a certain price, we went out there and we did it. So the exciting thing for me was that now I have enough money in the bank um, to be able to pay for Tony for the full arc. So no matter what happens with COVID, we can do that. And we were able to offer people something that um, was personal and collectible in that regard and got them in on the ground floor and let them invest in the in the series. And the last thing I'll say, because I feel like I, I just like the longest answer to a question ever, um, <laughs> is that, you know, I've been working in Cape Comics for 10 years plus, mm -hmm. you know, I love it. And I'm not going anywhere. Um, I am still have two big projects for DC, mm -hmm. uh, one really big one in particular. But both of them now at this point in my career, I'd like to kind of, they're both things that are a little bit to the side of the main line. And I've made myself a promise a while ago that this year I would go back and start working more on creator own, some of the existing properties like American Vampire and Witches, but then new stuff uh, like this. And so I announced that uh, the company that I've always held privately, uh, Best Jacket, which is a portmanteau of my kids' names, Jack and Emmett. And then we have a third one now, Quinn, but he came along too late. <laughs> so my wife was like, what if you add a Q to that and make a jacket? I was like, nobody could pronounce that. I'm not doing that. I'll have to find another way of getting a Q in there someday. But the, uh, the idea was go public with it and make it my own label and be able to put my books out through that not commit it to any one publisher so that I can be nimble with the creators that I'm working with and be able to choose with them what sort of delivery system and home would be best for each book. So the fun thing is it allows me all this creative flexibility to be able to do things like 
self-publish a book or publish a book um, with an actual book publisher if it's prose. You know, I have one that I'm working with uh, with Jock. Like, spoiler, I'm not really supposed to say, but it's part prose. It's called The Book of Evil. I'm really happy with it. Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd have the opportunity because of the flexibility of all of it to try something outside of the kind of conventional comic publishing matrix. And so other, there are also ways um, I'm looking into doing digital first with a bunch of them. Mm. So some of them will come out directly uh, to the dire- straight to the direct market with image, um, two of them, including Noctera. Mm. So some of the artists are brand new so that for me to work with, some of them are like old friends and established, very established people like Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, but the goal with this was if we funded and we did Kickstarter right, uh, if it did, if it did well, then I, my pledge to, to backers is that I won't take any money personally for it as profit. Um, I'm really, I didn't even take a page rate at this point for Noctera. Uh, the idea is to be able to pay for the next artist on the next book. Mm-hmm. Um, I have about seven books at different stages of production right now. Um, I've written them over the last two years, so it's not like I'm concurrently writing seven books. They're things that I've been squirreling away and teasing for a while. Like there's a book with Francesco Francavilla that we've been teasing for for a really for over a year. There's a book with um, with somebody with somebody else. That I don't want to I don't want to give too much away that that we're not mm-hmm. going to start working on for about six months. So they're all all different stages over the next two years. Um, but what this allows me to do now that I have a little bit of um, funding is uh, be more aggressive about making sure that uh, I don't have to do something where I have the money to pay somebody one month, uh, you know, on a book, but I say to them the next month, listen, we can do, we can do the first couple issues of this, but I don't know that I'm going to have enough to, to do because um, it's not coming out for, we're not, you know, it's because it's so far down the line. Mm-hmm. Let's do some DC stuff. I have DC stuff I can give you on the side and then, you know, we'll go back to like all those kinds of stuff. I'm, we're all just, you know, I just want to do these books and I want, I want uh, to be able to make them in a way that's really stable for the artist mm-hmm. and me. Um, and so this allows that. So I'm, I'm really thrilled. I mean, the next book, I'm probably just going to go for it and just say one of them at least that is directly funded by this um, uh, early next week, but it's with an artist I've never worked with. She's a real up and comer. Uh, she's pretty new, but, uh, she's incredibly talented and the book is really different than anything I've tried. It's like a locked room mystery. So, um, you know, all that, that's the whole fun of it. That's why Kickstarter is because it really, it was something that felt both really practical right now and also of the moment where we can connect with fans in a direct way. And I honestly think that like the success of all of these different Kickstarters happening now across comics that you see from David Peepos and Alex mm-hmm. Campy and Jeff Lemire and Charles Sewell and just all my buddies it's be- partly, you know, COVID has made us desperate for that connection. But I also feel that there's kind of weather pattern stuff blowing through corporate comics where yeah. is invested in them as I am. There is kind of a move away from, I think, um, really creator, creator first and as opposed to brand first, mm-hmm. which isn't a bad thing. You know, I think the brands, the superheroes are always going to be bigger than the creators and should be. But I feel like it's kind of like a sports team where you might be loyal to the Yankees or the Lakers or anybody, but there are years where you have really good players on those teams. And in those years, you're more excited about the team than off years. And so the more that you see uh, corporations, I think, 
move away from creator-driven comics, um, and the more you see people accustomed to consuming entertainment in a really subjective way where they demand authenticity, they want immediacy, they want direct connection with people, they don't want to feel like it's filtered through a hundred things. You know, it's been really eye-opening for me doing Kickstarter in that regard because it's allowed me to engage with fans really casually. I've been doing all these fun, like, chats with people just they do a lottery and any backer that you know tries it it's all free like once you back the book or mm-hmm. at any level um you know you might get one of the tickets and then i get to do a five minute meet and greet and i did like you know three hours of them so far and it's a blast we just talk like this ask me anything and it just reminded me that this is this is what comment this is the best to me I guess the best DNA of comics is this kind of interactivity with fans, collaboration with, with creators in ways that you're making something together that's elastic and organic and kind of reactive to what fans want, all of it. So it's a really great moment, I think, for, for crowdfunded books, but also for the larger sort of movement and I think tectonic shift that they represent, you know, in general towards towards um, a, a, a much more robust kind of creator and fan audience relationship yeah and and you know i definitely like the idea that you know this project sort of you know it greases greases the wheels a bit so that you know it it funds this project would help fund the next project would now funds you know what i mean uh no that's that's definitely uh interesting and you know talking about the collector's edition real quick obviously you know if you're a scott snyder fan if you're a tony daniel fan you know this is something you'll be interested in but you know, it also feels like a useful book who, for people who are interested in the, pro, the, you know, the overall process of making comics, because you're looking at the script, you know, and you're looking at the rough uh, line art. Um, you know, would you consider yourself like a, like a process person, uh, you know, process guy, process nerd, whatever you want to call it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like the biggest process nerd. I, like, I, I, if the movie has an option to buy with the bonus features that say, like, that's all I get, like for Disney movies, <laughs> for all, like for everything, because... I think a lot of it was just like growing up and wanting to be a writer and a comic book artist, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of process available um, back then the way there is now. I mean, there was like how to draw comics the Marvel way and all that stuff. And, you know, and then uh, Denny O'Neill had that great uh, comic writing book when I was a little older, but the, the, I was so desperate for a teacher when I was young, you know, I didn't know how to learn how to write comics or, draw comic you just copied things you know and that and um for me all the way through college you know I I I had a hard time finding a teacher I related to with with writing it was a really weird moment in writing where when I was in college where the internet was brand new (laughs) and so there was this belief that it was going to like destroy revolutionize and destroy linear narrative and that you know we should we should abandon it and try stories that are more like choose your own adventures with links like a word would link to another story and it wouldn't be this. And, and that was like the rage right then. And I was like, I just want to write a story. But the, uh, and the funniest part of it was like the technology wasn't really there yet for it. So it was like, you'd click on a thing and it would like crash, you know, and you go to these readings and it was just a disaster where it was just a chaotic mess of like that terrible static and, you know, uh, beeping of a modem or that, you know, that buzzing of a modem. But the, uh, even all the way through up until I was in, uh, I went to graduate school for writing, but it wasn't until late college where I started doing summer programs. I mean, I was that geeky that like, I went to like writing camp, you know, but I was always really, really eager for, um, 
for instruction, you know, because yeah. my parents, uh, they're both in medicine. Um, my wife is in medicine. My sister is a, th- a physical therapist. Like I'm like the black sheep of the family. My wife is like the son my father never had, you know, who's like <laughs> the doctor, but all those careers, there's sort of a, a traditional path to like learn your trade. And with writing and that stuff, there really isn't. Um, so it wasn't until I was older and really committed to it and, you know, scared to death about not being good enough that I started to find really good teachers and books and all of that stuff and find good instruction in my really early 20s. So um, it's just always been there for me like that. I love seeing behind the scenes. I always feel that seeing the clockwork by which something runs is makes it only more kind of wondrous. So a hundred percent, I always buy the comic book editions that have like the scripts included line art, all that stuff. So I don't really give my scripts away though. I haven't done it before. DC has done it within some of their um, editions of some of the Batman stuff generally. But the reason is because, uh, that one of the things that I really pride myself on, honestly, as a comic writer, is the lesson that Greg Capullo taught me when we started Court of Owls, where mm-hmm. when we began that book, we were totally opposite, you know, and we did not get along. Like, I, I actually almost got him, like, I don't, I don't know if they would have done it, but I was, like, ready to be like, if Tim or me were getting off this, one of us is getting off this book, it probably would have been me, <laughs> but uh, the he really wanted me to loosen up and write Marvel style. And I was so terrified of being on Batman. And I, I really, I mean, I had like, it wasn't even like imposter syndrome. I was just like an imposter because I was like, Batman was my favorite character since I was a kid. And it's like, you know, you want to, you want to eventually write Batman, of course, mm-hmm. like that's the golden ring. But, um, I thought I'd maybe do a, a little bit of Batman 10 years into being a comic book writer. You know, I had just broken in that year and then they put me on detective. I mean, which I, I was excited was open, but I was, I spent my entire tenure on that book, like panic attacking and, you know, freaking out. And the only saving grace was that two were that Grant was doing Batman. So nobody was paying much attention to me for a while, which was great. And then, um, they let me work with Jock and Francesco, which was great also. But also uh, Dick Grayson was Batman, which worked fantastically for me because he was terrified of being Batman and I was terrified of writing Batman. It was easy. And then when I was with Greg, I was, they didn't tell me it was going to be number one. They didn't tell me it was going to be uh, uh, New 52 or even Bruce Wayne for a while. And then all of that hit at once. And then I was with Capullo, who I didn't know. And I was like, oh, my God, he's going to draw the cape like Spawn cape. That's not this kind of story. You know, I was all like, and then we just butted heads where he was like, just give me, you got to just learn to give me the important parts. And I was like, they're all important, Greg. But the, uh, I was really, it was just a matter. I was an asshole. I was just scared. That's all it was. Like, you know, I was terrified that I was going to flub it in the first reboot of Batman in 70 years. And, you know, I was going to be the guy that screwed it up. And so where I really loosened up was about issue three, four, we were having a good time together, even though we were still like, I don't know if I like you. Um, and his art was so good. And he, he was just trying so hard. And I was trying so hard. We just started to bond. And uh, he saw how nervous I was. And he, he made me laugh a lot, even when I was not like, even when I was like mad or worried about stuff he was doing, he was very funny. He, you know, and so I was just sort of like, this guy's easy trip, whatever. And uh he um we got to issue five and he was like just give me a little room on this issue and i'm like all right you know what i'm gonna just write marvel style for this labyrinth because 
you know, let's see what you can do. And he did, came up with that brilliant idea of like turning the book and it became one of our biggest issues. And so from that point forward, it really changed our relationship creatively. Um, and I'm still, I still learn from Greg, both as a friend, he's my, you know, like my best friend and uh, a mentor creatively. Um, but uh, that moment really changed everything because it made me realize that you cannot write for every artist the same way, at least I can't. It has to be a matter of asking them what's going to bring out their best, what they like to do, how they like to work. And so my scripts are really different. Like a script for Greg, if I'm writing the same scene and it's like, I don't know, it's like Batman, you know, chasing the Batman who laughs like across the rooftops and in Gotham and, you know, uh, uh, whatever. It's like for Greg, it's like, uh, you always start with what the what the scene's about, what you're trying to achieve, what the emotional core of it is. That's always, you know, there. So it's like, Greg, this scene, we want to start in media res. It's so high tension. You know, Batman looks like he's, he's for the first time ever, he's ready to kill somebody. Uh, he, you know, we're, we're running, we're with him for the first page. We don't see who it is until page turn that he's chasing. But all we get the sense in his narration and all of this stuff is that he's never been this determined to kill someone and that's it. And you're like, that's our hook at the beginning, right? For a jock who likes full script, it would be like panel one, Gotham rooftops, you know, rain, lightning, thunder, boots running across. It's, you know, Bruce, uh, Batman's boots, whatever. You know, panel two, we pull back, we see he's bleeding, he's missing teeth, he's just, you know, whatever, he's narrating about panel three, like that. It's much more that. And so I've always felt uncomfortable including a script really because I don't think that it's indicative of, of like a template that I use, but if I'm, if we're showing the process by which we figured stuff out and I can make an, like an annotation to it and say in the back of the book, which I have here, this is why you can see the art and the script are different. This is where Tony came up with this great idea or Greg came up with this idea. That to me, I felt like would be a really good use of including a script. You know, if you can see the space between what I wrote and what he drew and then, um, why that's why why it changed one way or another sometimes just because he came up with an idea sometimes because we had a conversation so that's part of the fun of something like this so i'm i'm really excited for people to see it because i do think that it's um i don't know it's the kind of thing that i would have liked and we you know really like to get when i was a kid and coming up and now as an adult i would buy it too but the other thing is um we've tried to make the whole campaign that you know so like there's not a lot of bells and whistles like we have prints by artists that are part of Best Jacket, or friends of ours, but we don't have a lot of like pins and, you know, 3D stuff or any of that. Like, not that there's anything wrong with that. We just wanted to make the tiers like, you can take a class with me for mm -hmm. writing first issues. You can get drawing craft, uh, a, uh, live, uh, live streams from Tony. You can, you know, be drawn into the book. You can do, I do all these chats and AMAs just for fun too. Like, so the whole goal is to try and create a sense of intimacy and um, connection that will carry forward into best jacket going, uh, going into 2021. Mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about the way that you described uh, your working relationship with Greg and its evolution. Uh, I believe you just described the plot of a buddy cop movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it, we were very buddy cop. It is very, we were very like lethal weapon, I, I, like, or whatever. It, I feel like I can't tell which of us is Riggs in that one. Like with the, we're very, yes, it is, but it is a buddy cop. It is, a, it, we, we are like, but, and he's, 
I mean, you, you just look at us, you know what I mean? Like we, we make a funny duo, but he's, he's my brother. I love him. I was just talking to him earlier tonight. So, um, you know, talking about the, the uh, Kickstarter uh, <clears throat> rewards and everything. I think uh, today as we're recording this, uh, they announced this, you know, like a $5,000 tier where, you know, you could get drawn to the book before, but now you can get drawn to the book getting red shirted in, uh, you and you know, get one page. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. But, yeah. That was a fun one too. Tony thought it up and was like, what if I get to kill them and they have a speaking role and they get the page? I'm like, if you want to do it, you know, why not? So absolutely. Um, you know, as someone doing their, their first Kickstarter and, you know, seeing how, you know, seeing the results, seeing, you know, how far you are over goal, you know, that you're able to introduce like new tiers to kind of keep the interest going, you know, how, how does it feel kind of getting to this point where you're still actively, you know, keeping things rolling because the interest is so high? It's fascinating, honestly. I, I mean, I don't know that I do things wildly differently if I did it again, mm -hmm. but it's been so eye-opening just to know how engaged fans are when they um, become a part of it. Meaning like they want more stuff. They want more, they want to be rewarded with like, guess what? We reached this threshold. Now all of you get a car, you know, that kind of Oprah, <laughs> like, and, and I love that. And I love, I've backed a bunch of campaigns, but I'm the kind of person I back it and I don't pay attention. Like I, I back it for the book or the game. And then I, you know, I'm, I'm out. Like I'm mm -hmm. not a huge investment person in terms of the, but now that I've seen this, now I want to be in the way that um, it's like a month of, you know, ongoing kind of cumulative connection and suspense and fun and all of it. So even when I just ask and say, hey, do you guys want me to do something like this in AMA? And they're like, yes, I'm all right, let's go on the thing and do it. Um, and it's funny, you know, because um, not to not to name anybody or anything like that, but there are big creators when I came to DC, like the biggest, that really gave advice that I think worked for them, but is the antithetical to the way that I've tried to proceed with my career, which was they were like, you don't you don't want to be personal or engage on social media. You know, you don't want to you don't want to create a vulnerability there um, or access because it, you just put it in the work. You know, just it's in the work and leave it alone. And, um, you know, that, that has worked well for a, a bunch of people, you know, that we all like, you can see who's on and who's not. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, I don't know what it is. I just, maybe it's just honestly that when I was coming up, it was a, it was a hustle, you know, when, when you're coming up and you're on indie books and that stuff. And I had hustled when I was in the book world for quite a few, not a long time, but for, you know, a good handful of years, uh, when I was broke and, you know, working on jobs and trying to send my stuff out. And so social media was like, can I, can I get somebody, one of my friends who had a book out or a story out in the world to help me, you know, push what I'm doing. So there was a sense of camaraderie and coming in and being part of it and letting people know what you were trying to say and all of it. And I've tried to be pretty open and honest on there. Um, there are obviously things corporate wise that sometimes I feel like you're more effective internally if you fight, to get something creatively than complain about it online or, you know, mm -hmm. say something online when it becomes, well, they won't let me use this character because X, Y, Z, and you're getting criticized for it better to go in and talk to them. But for the most part, I've tried to be relatively transparent. Um, and I think that this moment, uh, this, this moment in particular, I think is 
about that stuff. So I feel good about that. I feel good, good that I've tried to create a, a, a pretty strong relationship with my fans about letting them into my life, you know, seeing, seeing um, when I'm up, when I'm down, my kids are like being a dad, all the kind of, you know, stuff that just is important to me and who I am. So I love Kickstarter because um, it demands that it really does. It kind of demands that interact interaction where you're not on some pedestal as like, you know, the writing a big book or a superhero they love. You're just somebody who's making something with them that you're all in it together. So I like, I like being knocked down a few pegs that way, you know, it's fun. <laughs> um. So yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the story of Noctara itself. You know, you've gone into it uh, a little bit, with the eternal darkness and people transforming into uh, shades. And there's this woman, Val Riggs, who's driving, driving this giant uh, illuminated truck, which, you know, I'm all for a good mashup of uh, horror, you know, horror concepts and trucking culture. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this, was, this was originally, this was introduced as Nocturnal to start, right? And then there was like a name yeah. to it. Yeah, we changed it. We changed it. Um, we realized when, when we went to look at trade, we, I had looked at the trademark and obviously there was nothing with that spelling with nocturnal because it was a mashup of eternal and, and nocturnal for eternal night. Um, but when we published the comic and then I searched it, I mean, I, when we started the Kickstarter and then I would search for nocturnal, other series like the nocturnals by Dan Bairdon would pop up. There was a YA book series um, that popped up that was a, you know, really young, like a, you know, a kind of middle grade series. But even so, it was, um, it was just worrisome in terms of uh, stepping on people's toes. And I, I had, sp I spoke to Dan and uh, he was, he was really cool. It was more just, you know, I, I could tell too, like, that's his property, the nocturnal, mm -hmm. he's the nocturnals. And even though there's difference, like he was being nice about it, but I didn't want to I don't know. I didn't want to, we didn't want to step on, step on anyone's territory, you know, on anyone's lawn. Mm -hmm. And I, and we had come up with Noctera after we, after we like launched the campaign and I liked it better. And we were like, Oh, we, whatever. So it wasn't a big deal. I like it. Cause it's, you know, Noct is the root of night and Terra is, you know, earth. And so it's night earth. And so, yeah, so we swapped it over. Um, and we kind of, there was one point at which, um, we were going to do a poll and let fans kind of pick the title, but I was really nervous because I really liked Noctara. And I was like, I, what if they picked the other, there are other ones like Evernight and which is good. But then there's also a YA series called that. Everything is taken by the way, by like <laughs> teen vampire romances, anything with night and eternal and, and like immortality and uh, you know, forever everlasting is all, all like uh, yeah. Romantic romantic tween vampires and werewolves and stuff mm -hmm. so don't try it uh anyway uh but then I, yeah i was like i'm worried they'll pick a different name and i was like not tara and so did tony so we we're like we're just gonna do that at one point i was like what if we make the other name horrible like you know black rain sun black hole and you know and then i'm like but what if they like it and then they pick that and then we're stuck with that name you know so i was like yeah no forget it <laughs> We've uh. all seen the Bodie McBoatface story. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Yes, I know, dude. I, I do not want that. So, yeah. So that was like part of letting people in the pro in, into the whole thing too. So I'm curious from something you said earlier, 
there, when you're dealing with a horror story that takes place in a world that has drastically changed, and I read a lot of horror, there are sort of two through lines for those kinds of stories. There's your Night of the Living Dead or Walking Dead, where the why is less important than the what next. Right. But then there's also the ones where that root is key and you're trying to find your way out of that world. Is this more the former or the latter without spoiling too much, obviously? That's a question, Matt. It's, I I hate to, like, I'm not trying to like split the difference, but it is both in the way that I have the exact same kind of template in my head as you do, where I was like, is it zombie farmhouse or is it, you know, because I was like, they're trapped, but and what I realized was the best way to do it was to have the mystery of, of what caused the darkness. Is there a way out of it? Uh, is it scientific? Is it supernatural? Is it uh, uh, cosmic? Was it biblical? Because at one point I was going to call the book when I first came up with it, the ninth plague, because darkness is the ninth plague in the Old Testament. The, uh, so the idea was um, to sort of start with that nonstop uh high octane horror of something like 28 days later, you know, the, the feel of um, the pressure cooker, like you're saying, like kind of the zombie farmhouse, but on the run, like in trucks where there's no escape, there's no, there's no explanation. And then part of the hook, I'll just spoil a little bit. So like the first issue, the first issue, essentially it focuses on Val uh, and her adopted, she and her brother were both adopted. So her brother Emery, and they grew up together in this post darkness world she, when she was very young, had uh, really terrible cataracts before she was adopted. And she was just, you know, the time, between the time of like one and four. Uh, and then when she was adopted, uh, she had corrective surgery. It was pretty extensive. And now she has good vision. But she remembers this period where she kind of lived in darkness. And her call sign, actually, it, the thing on her helmet, I don't know if I've said this, is the way that she saw the sun when she was uh, young, when she hmm. before she had surgery. So it's this kind of almost eclipsed red sort of fiery ring. Uh, And so she made that her call sign to truck to be a ferryman because it reminds her uh, of all the skills that she learned when she was young to make it through the darkness and how strong she was as a little kid. Um, Emery is more of a kind of um, not fit for this world. He's like, I I actually took a lot from my son, Emmett, who uh, is such an empath and he's such a sensitive kid that I constantly worry. Like, I'm like, you know, not that he has to be tough, but just... (laughs) I worry he's like so vulnerable to every hurt in the world. And that's kind of this guy, her brother. Um, and they, she's very protective of him. And he's her guy in the chair where he, he tells her what's going on on the roads. And, and so she, she takes people from outpost to outpost. And basically the book starts with, with her coming back from a trip and other ferrymen. And the ferrymen all have like different lighted costumes. Everybody wears stuff with lights all over it. So it has a kind of fun, like, video game quality, I think, in the in the visuals to it. Some people that don't have a lot of money have just, like, light bulbs hanging from, you know, whatever, like, battery hats. And people that um, have money have, like, LED suits. But you have to kind of stay out of the darkness uh, or you start to uh, change and mutate. And so she comes back and they start bothering her that her brother hasn't been in, in, in the outpost. He went outside the outpost for a while. And they have to check him and they're worried about him. And she's like, he wouldn't do that. And then she goes up and she talks to him and she notices that he has the first signs of having been out too long in the darkness. 
And so she's really concerned. Sometimes at the really early stages like this, if you can find a powerful kind of solar lamp, you can, sometimes the rumor is you can burn it out. So she takes this really dangerous job driving. She meets when she meets an old man and his granddaughter who are like willing to pay her to take them up into the mountains in Colorado where they are, where there are human shades. Nobody really lives to talk about human shades. They congregate somewhere out there in the dark and you know, no one, no one like comes back from going to see one of them. People fight deer and bats and all kinds of crazy shit, but humans you don't come back from. And so she decides to go uh, take this job because she thinks she can make enough money to possibly buy something that will help her brother medically. Um, and what she doesn't know is that this guy who she's taking is being followed by this really badass team of um, mercenaries who basically hire every ferryman around to chase them down and kill them. And they don't know why. And what they learn is he was part of a team of people who is accused, we don't know if it's true, of being some, uh, one of a uh, phalanx of people across the world that helped cause this darkness. So you see what I'm saying? So that's more than I've ever said about the book, by the way. So that's like the, but that's the first, the, the premise of the first arc. So what mm -hmm. happens, you see what I mean? It's like nonstop, nonstop, nonstop you know, pressure cooker, zombie farmhouse, kind of 28 days later, train to Busan, kind of like, and then when you get to the end, it opens up the mythology and says, now next arc, they have a different direction where it's more about, can they find an answer to what caused this thing? And it takes them, there is kind of an end game for it. So I'm very excited about it. We have about four arcs planned out. Um, those are like, if I had to cut it to the bone, sort of like Undiscovered Country, where it's like, when, we, when we've pitched it, and it started, we were like, we can do this in 30 issues, but it's going to be tight. And now that it's done uh, well, we have it expanded to 50. So this is a similar format where it's like the minimum I'd like to do is, you know, four solid arcs. But um, my hope is that if it goes well and, um, you know, Kickstarter seems to be a good litmus test, then um, we'll be able to keep it going for 50 issues, you know, more. I'd love to stay on this one for a long time because I'm bringing American Vampire to a close this year. We're going to come back to it. It's not like it's dead, but um, it comes up to the present day and the newest arc. It ends in the 76 and then it brings you up to the present day in the coda. And it'll allow us to then take it in a new direction when we revisit it. But, um, you know, with that, with that coming to a close with my, with this kind of years and years saga of Batman and Justice League and metal coming to a close, mm -hmm. I want to kind of reinvest in having some ongoing series that I can play around for quite a long time in, in the indie world. Uh, which, which, you know, perfect segue into talking about Best Jacket. Uh, you know, you've already talked about some of the artists that you've got on deck for projects, uh, Jock, Francesco, uh, I think, uh, I've also seen Francis Manipool, Becky Cloonan uh, tossed around, um, you know, Jesus, listen to that roster. Uh, now this is, is Best Jacket going to kind of live at Image as like an imprint or is the idea that, you know, you can take things to different places? And, the second, and yeah, the second. it's a hundred percent the second one where Image is a great home to me. I love, I love uh, placing, you know, creator own books there. And I spoke to Eric extensively, Eric Stevenson and Robert Kirkman about, mm -hmm doing an imprint there wholly, but what I came to realize, you know, maybe a year ago, just, just under a year ago, really, like when COVID was hitting was that, um, or when we were first talking about it, you know, in yeah. January, was just the feeling that um, being in one place, it just, I want to be able to be even more, I've been in one place, like I've been at DC forever. I don't want to just be an image, you know, I want to be able mm -hmm. to say, 
Jock and I were talking about, like I said, doing our book at a um, book publisher. And I was talking to somebody else I haven't announced yet about doing a book at, um, starting it by um, doing it serially and, and saying something like, what if we do it for a month? I'll, I have, I can pay for this one. What if we do the, I'll pay, we'll do the whole thing. And then we'll release it every single day for a month, like, like a chapter thing. Cause it has that, it's a story that moves in, um, in, uh, in in leaps like every it's it takes place over a month and it's every day on this travelogue thing so it's almost like what if we did that and had people subscribe to it just the the ability to do whatever you know say hey you know what i'm just going to kickstart the next one who cares let's do it that that freedom is so exciting honestly to me and it's what i it's who i was when i started in comics um i've tried to keep one you know at least like one uh toe in that world by doing ad you know or doing like after death or the way books that kind of stretch stretch me creatively um but i haven't done it to the degree i wanted to i mean i had it the weirdest part i mean this is maybe too inside baseball but like every when i was exclusive at dc mm-hmm. i would i fought them every time i signed re-signed an exclusive to have carve outs to do indie stuff usually they would allow one indie book um uh but I, what I fought for was not even be able to do one indie book, but to do uh, short stories that I published myself graphically. Um, and they were okay with that. And then I never used it. And I really like fought and held up my contract over it because I just couldn't find the time. And I, you know, so that's, that's, that's what I want to have the freedom to do now, you know, especially just because I feel like it's of the moment too, you know, it's, 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 it's where I am. And it happens to be like a kind of great crop, like cross uh, sort of just like a, a moment where I feel like my, what I'm really excited about and interested in is, you know, just circumstantially kind of part of what's in the zeitgeist a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not a young up and coming creator. So I, I'm, I'm like, I don't know if I'm, I'm too old to, to do it, but I, I'm really fired up and I really love the books we're working on. So, um, you know, and, and looking at a lot of these artists, you know, they're people that you've worked with at DC, if not, you know, directly then, then indirectly, uh, you know, is, is there an element of, you know, you guys have all been in the trenches together in corporate comics sort of that, that, you know, makes you want to work with them, keep working with them, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, we're friends. Like that's, Part of it is like Francis is one of my close friends. You know, Francis is somebody who we've seen each other through some pretty rough times. Um, we've mm-hmm. our families are friends, our wives are friends. Like you know, uh, same thing. Uh, Jock, I mean, Jock's daughter Isla and my kid Emmett play together on the computer. You know, all the time. And like Jock is the first person to ever take a chance on me in comics that was already a star. So. Mm-hmm you know, we're, we're friends for a long time. Um, so there's a feeling of camaraderie there. I think the thing that also is exciting about working with them as kind of one track is uh, that they understand that what I want to do with the label is to do things that are unfamiliar to what we do together. Mm-hmm. So like the book with Jock, like I said, is, is pretty experiment. It's not experimental in terms of um, being challenging, challenging as a read but its form is experimental. It's like a journal and it's written from the point of view of a kid. And uh, it's going to, it's not going to be like handwritten. It'll be typed, but it's Jock is designing it to like, look, he's just doing book design with it and he's doing spot illustrations because the kid, the kid is an artist and draws what he sees. And so there's, 
it's a whole different kind of format, you know, than anything you've seen from us. Uh, similarly, like Francis and I are working on a book that's a genre of sci-fi that I've never tried. So, um, you know, it's that kind of a thing where it's all like, I don't want to go in there and do Justice League with, you know, but my version of Francis, I don't want to go in there and do, you know, the, the cat man who laughs or whatever with, with Jock, you know, or whatever it is like their vigilante stories. I want it to be something you haven't seen. So that's the deal with the people I've worked with, but there's quite a number of people I haven't that um, I haven't announced like, you know, uh, one, again, like I said, like this coming week, we'll bring up one. Uh, but other ones I've only worked with tangentially and they're, they're really different style than me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to kind of mix it up and see how their style and my style go together. Mm -hmm. We've just become friends. Everybody on here, people that I approached quite a while ago and just said, you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, what do you think? Do you like this story? I have a couple ideas that I think might fit. And, you know, that I think each one is really organically matched to the creator I'm working with on it. So it's pretty fun. Like it's demands a lot of different things. You know, some of the books I wrote a while ago, like the Francis one, um, you know, has a lot of pages behind it already written. So it's more a matter of um, now having, having the funds so that Francis and I were always like, let's just work on it on the side. Cause his, he's, I mean, he's, he's very well paid by DC. It's a very hard thing for me to match, you know, issue to issue. It's not like I don't have, I mean, I have money, but I'm not rich and I can't be like, Francis, I can pay your salary page to page plus coloring for five, six issues before we get paid, but I can pay an issue and then, you know, see if the first priority I have, you know, I'll pay again. And Francis is my friend. So he's just sort of like, let's just work on it as we have time and not worry about it. I'm like, great, mm -hmm. let's do it. But we've worked on it quite a long time. And now that I've switched my business plan, not just from the Kickstarter, but there are all kinds of things behind the scenes that I haven't really, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to bring up because they're in, I mean, with, with, fans just because they're still in motion but you know i'm using money from now i have money from uh which is like a tv that which has got picked up for tv and things like that that i can i can fund some of the books um down the line but not others because i, I if they they're going to be six months out and i won't have it again then you know i don't know that i'll have the money so anyway not to get too in the weeds with this but the idea is that uh the Kickstarter and now other, other things going well, um, hopefully will allow me to really do all the books in different um, form, like staggered ways throughout the next two years. My goal is to really put out, I have about like, you know, nine ideas, nine books with artists committed to them. Some of them have 60 pages drawn, some of them have 30 pages drawn, some have like 10, you know? And so mm -hmm. it's all, it's all like crawling forward at different speeds. And now this is really gonna allow me to push it forward faster. Awesome. Um, you know, we've, uh, you mentioned Undiscovered Country uh, a little bit ago and, and, you know, wanting to, to take that to, you know, 50 issues versus, you know, kind of a tight 30. Um, given that it's a book that is, is, you know, sort of in conversation with current events or, or you know, a, a worked version of a future that obviously makes sense given current events, you know, looking at what has happened this year, you know, does it make writing that book more or less difficult given what a surreal sharp turn we've all taken? It's a weird experience. I mean, it's funny. I just was in town yesterday with my kid and 
they were selling a shirt at near CVS that just said 2020 sucks. And that's it. And it was like, <laughs> it didn't have like any picture, <laughs> like any special font. It was just like a blunt <laughs> statement in like the plainest font. And I was like, that shirt makes sense. But the, uh, the idea um, with Undiscovered Country, the thing that's funny is like, there are all these kind of small things about it or big things in the plot that now have kind of, you know, uh, become part of the current event cycle between pandemics and walls and things closing and borders and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the thing that we always thought was most resonant is the sort of driving force of it, which is like this warning against isolationism on, on different levels. You know, the idea of, um, you know, like nationally and on a global stage, so many places, so many countries retreating from any kind of connectivity and putting themselves first. And, I, I, you know, it's not like it's some evil thing, but it's a, it's dangerous in our opinion or my opinion, uh, because I feel as though um, it mirrors a kind of, it mirrors a sort of disconnect that you see on a personal level going on everywhere as well, where you can insulate yourself, you know, from anything you don't want to see or hear. It leads itself to all kinds of conspiracy theories and, you know, and on top of that, like you see it in a positive way, a lot of the time, like my kids, like my kids, you know, wrap themselves in whatever entertainment and culture they find themselves. There's no like central thing where it's like right. Thursday night at nine, you all watch Cheers. My kid, um, my 13 year old and his friends started watching Cheers just because they heard about it and liked it. And then it became their thing now. And so that that's wonderful and weird the way they kind of culture vulture things and find it. But it's still odd to me to see everything be so subjective where you're creating your own experience from like the entertainment you consume with your friends, like the neighborhood of culture you create for, between you guys, mm -hmm. all the way up to adults in a dangerous way. A lot of the time, you know, completely wrapping themselves in things that just support their own beliefs. And that can get even really dangerous with people that are like, you know, have extreme, extreme um, and like, dangerous sort of conspiracy beliefs as well so then you just to me it's like one trajectory it's like the idea of of feeling small humble part of one generational story looking back at the founding principles the idea that we're supposed to all be in it together and even if it's all some we're total hip, hypocrites and we never approach kind of the um we never approach the hem of that um promise there's still the sense of of aspiration to that 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 it's about being small, connected, humble, uh, collectivism, all of that. that. That's what we're supposed to be. You know, that's, that's who we're supposed to be on paper from the moments we were founded. And the idea of retreating from that into factionalism is really depressing, you know, on every level, whether it's like a country pulling away from the world stage or it's a person moving away from any kind of objective reality into like a space where they're, you know, spinning in crazy theories. So that's, that's what the book's about. It's about like, we're facing these huge systemic problems as a, you know, as a country, as, as human being, like as people individually, you know, in terms of the crises we're all up against in our homes with COVID and all of it. Mm -hmm. And the only way through it is together. It sounds like a corny platitude, but I think there's no country that's supposed to be more together and a, and a celebration of difference in America. So that's, that's, that's why it feels relevant and resonant to us, even um, despite or in spite of or w regardless of um, the concrete connections to what's happening in the news, you know, mm -hmm. in that way. Noctera too, though. I mean, Noctera for me is like, 
you know, it's literally a story about a darkness that separates people from one another and changes them into monsters if they stay alone too long in the dark. So it's much more of like kind of child's metaphor um, or childish metaphor for the same kind of thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's the argument that Lex Luthor was making in Justice League as well, that, you know, think of yourself, think of the people around, don't think of anyone beyond your your circle. That's it, you know, just be be self admit who we are like that we're designed to be selfish it's human nature it's baked into our dna embrace it just be that you know be about winning you know that's it just who cares about anybody else and and there is something i think we are programmed that way but what makes us special is our ability to think past that and reach reach past what we're designed to be and you know batman who laughs he says the opposite in the book he says what makes us special is our propensity for evil that's that's what separates us from the monkey, the apes. They can't be as cruel as we are. That's what you should celebrate. And so that 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 kind of stuff is plays out across all the stuff that I'm working on. You know, that's that's the way I work. Where it's like something that keeps you up at night. You just keep re- reworking it from different angles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's really on the surface, and sometimes it's sublimated beneath or translated into this kind of like crazy comic book language where it's like ray guns and talking starfish and whatever. Um, but it's still about the same stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of things that keep you up at night and uh, you mentioned before that we're coming back to American vampire uh, f- for the first time in a while and good old Skinner sweet, the some bitch who just won't stay dead and keeps on coming. Um, was it, you know, like slipping into a comfortable pair of boots, getting back to Skinner and Pearl and the rest. I was really scared it wouldn't be, and then it was. It was the it was the easiest issue I've written in a long time. Partly, I've been thinking about it forever. We were going to do it last year, but again, like just talking out of school. But DC wanted us to hold off until the tenth anniversary, which is this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted us to kind of celebrate it around Halloween tenth anniversary, and so. We put it on hold, but we had talked through a bunch of this arc for a while. So I've had a long time to mull it over. And it's been in my head in some form or other since I pitched the series where it's in the document, like that it was going to end, it would end this kind of a way, not with these particulars, like things have grown um, and changed over the years, but the basic bones of it are still the same. Um, But I love it. It's my favorite arc easily. And it's my, you know, not to ever pick your favorite child, but it's my favorite series that I do. My wife asked me, she's always like, she's not a big comic person, but she loves, she'll always read what I give her from other people and that stuff that I think, you know, recommend that I think she'll like. And she's always wary of reading my stuff because she's like, you know, she's read a lot like, you know, Court of Owls and all that stuff. But she's like, if you ever have something you really want me to read, tell me and I'll read it. But I can't keep up with like Justice League and everything. (laughs) I wouldn't want you to. I love the book, but it's not, you know, you're a doctor, like go do your your stuff. Um, But uh, American Vampire is the one that I gave her that I was like, look, this one, this one is the most intimate. Uh, You know, it's not the most uh, openly personal the way witches is. And it's not the most like, you know, um, like uh, deeply about like my hopes, you know, which is the superhero stuff. But it's the one that explores like everything I love to write about. It's got everything from, you know, history, Americana, folklore, horror, monsters, things hidden in history, all that kind of stuff that I just love doing is is all there, that big soap opera. So this one takes place in 1976 at the Bicentennial. And uh, Skinner has been human now for eight years uh, and he does not understand why and he hates it. 
and he's kind of tried everything to become immortal again and he can't so he's on this kind of death spiral path where he's like basically he's like doing he's like a kind of shitty copy of evil Knievel in this like rundown stunt show mm. and it's like chainsaws on on you know on uh on ropes and he drives a motorcycle through them and over acid and and every night he almost dies and he's like he's there kind of just waiting for a bad thing to happen and and uh and uh he gets approached by pearl who's sort of like i need your help to rob a train and uh i won't give too much away but it picks up you know with all the all the characters are in it calvin's in it travis is in it uh who's the rockabilly vampire killer from the 50s calvin uh who's the taxonomist the another american vampire he's the taxonomist for the bms like Felicia book everybody's in it dracula's in it <laughs> so it's like it's like everyone comes back for the big finale where this this monster that's the original beast is about to rise out of the desert and claim the earth and it's like summer of 1976 the 200th anniversary of the birth of america and so it's like this huge kind of fireworks uh crescendo ending to everything that then catches us up to speed now so I really, I love it. I mean, I can't, I can't, I, 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 it went to the printer today. So it literally went to the printer today. And I like showed it to all my friends, James Tynan and Charles and everybody. And, and I was just like, just what do you think? Just tell me one last time that I, this is the best that I can do. Right. And it was like the best, I think it, I mean, I just want to make sure it's like absolutely nothing I can make better in it. So, you know, I'm really happy with it. I love that series. What was it like working with Stephen King on that first arc? Because that's another <laughs> thing that our, our our listeners are used to hearing me talk about. Stephen King he was with amazing. <laughs> he, uh, you know, I didn't expect him to be on the series at all. Like I had sent the book to him because I had gotten to know him when I was in um, graduate school. Uh, uh, and I had said, uh, you know, I'm doing this comic. Uh it owes a lot to your influence. Like, if you don't mind, like, could you just even write a, a sentence, but please like, I, you're crazy busy. Don't worry about it. And then he read it and he was like, well, I'd, I'd be happy to write an issue sometime if you want. And I'm like, I can't tell them that they're just going to want you to write issue one, <laughs> you know, not me. And uh, he was like, ah, you know, let's give it a shot. We'll just tell them I'll write an issue. And I was like, Oh my God. And I left a message for Vertigo after the offices were closed on Friday and like Monday at 8.45, I get this call from like the whole office that was like, did you just say Stephen King would write you? So um, it was awesome because he was such a fun collaborator and he was really funny. Like he would constantly do things where he like, first he was only supposed to write one issue, just like the equivalent of one issue that we were going to split into five page things at the end of each thing. And I wrote the outline for him. I was up to the point where Skinner comes out of a coffin in the water and it's like born again and that was supposed to be the end of his section and then he got there and he called he like emailed me and was kind of like uh i really like i'm just going off the res a little bit i hope you don't mind and i'm like sure you know whatever you want to do stephen king and then he like kept doing that and being like i'm gonna write a little bit more hope you don't mind and i, I didn't see it until the end i'm like what is he writing what's happening here and then he got to the end and handed it in it was like 120 pages or something it was like you know five almost six issues and i'm like oh my god all right well let's just let let's figure it out like i'll i'll make mine shorter and we'll 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 balance it out maybe we can edit some of his whatever and um he was really funny because he was just like he the first thing you notice is that he the scripts were incredibly robust where it was like 
descriptive down like a novel descriptive where it was like this is the kind of street out in the old west you see in these movies where there's like a dog sniffing around a thing and like a dead you know cow over here and you know out in the road and nobody moved it and this and like none of it is it's all just like atmospheric he's like but that's not what we're looking at we're looking at this <laughs> and you're like wow you really live in the story and what was so fascinating was like he could have just phoned it in you know and he could have just done the outline or he could have just phoned it in in his own terms and just kind of written it off but he really did it and like drafted it and there was you get the sense with him that he will not he can't write unless he's like hungry and living in the story which is so inspiring because he's such a rock star you know and to still see somebody that hungry and he he only took he took the lowest page rate and claimed no equity or anything in it so like he basically took like a beginner off the street page rate and like so you understand like he could have obviously said oh i made these characters this character in this and i want to put my name on it and i want a percentage in that and i would have been like of course you know what am i going to say um but he didn't do any of that and uh you know he was the kindest guy and then he was really fucking funny where he would like send in a script and at the end skinner would like change into a bat and fly away and then i'd be like oh my god i have to tell stephen king that that's not how our vampires work and like you know <laughs> and then i'd call him and be like Stephen, you know i uh, i'm really sorry but you know our vampires i thought i was clear but they don't change and whatever and he's like oh i'm just fucking with you and then like next script would come in and Pearl would like change into mist. You know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, is he messing with me or not? And it, he was just really funny. And uh, I think the highlight ever was like, he invited me and my wife down while we were passing through Florida to come visit him. Uh, it, he was staying there and, uh, and he, he heard that we were coming through. So it was on social media about it. And so we went and visited him and, and uh, he made us like spaghetti and all this stuff. And he had his pet turtle there. And while we were there, he was arguing, he argued, he was arguing with somebody on the phone at one point when we walked in and uh, he was like, they need to be, they need to be fast. They need to be fast now. They're not, there's no room for slow zombies anymore, George. And I was like, no way. Are you seriously talking to George Romero about zombies, you know? And he was like, I'm telling him, I'm telling him they gotta be fast, they're all fast. You know what I mean? And I was just like, I can just die. Like, you can just bury me now. And I, like that, you know what I mean? Like, please, like, that's it. I just heard the best, you know, snippet of conversation ever. So he's, he was awesome. I mean, he was, he couldn't have been a better champion and um, nicer guy. And I can't say enough good things about him. I mean, it really was like a inspiring experience about how, how to behave when you have any, is you may have get established in any way in the industry. And certainly I've like, I'm, I, we all mess up and I know I'm sure I've you know not been as good as I wanted to be like him and you know been as supportive but it has been like a driving force of what I've tried to do with teaching in, in DC and before and all of that and the process stuff like we're doing with Nocterra trying to trying to to you know be be uh be a good neighbor in comics um well yeah I I guess you know, as, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else we need to make sure, you know, that's out there about uh, Noctera, American Vampire or anything, uh, anything else you got going on right now? No, I just, I mean, I just want to say thanks to everybody. Like the, you know, death metal is doing way better than we had hoped and people seem to be digging it. It's one of my favorites that I've done. And uh, yeah, I mean, Noctera was it's going better than we had thought. So I just keep waiting for people not to show up and, and, 
you know, figure me out for the fraud or whatever I thought I was back in 2010 too to now, but I really appreciate it. Honestly, I'm trying my best. I can say that like nothing we're putting out is for lack of trying to make it the best thing we can. And, uh, you know, we really, I know I'm not, um, I'm not always going to pull it off, but it won't be for lack of trying in that regard. And it, yeah, if you have any last Batman questions too, Matt, too, I, I can answer anything you want before I have to go. Just how cool is it for you to see the Court of Owls, which is something you and Greg created on Gotham in this upcoming Batman family video game that it in uh, the Batman versus Robin animated film that this is something that has become part of this mythos that you loved and that I love and must be just, yeah. It's so, I, I can't even like, I remember the vividly, like we were just a few issues in when we had, uh, I don't think, I don't remember if it was C2E2, but it was a convention. I was there, um, it was a big one. And I was there with Greg and Court of Owls was just like, we were really only a few issues in. And uh, I was standing next to Dan DiDio and Bob Harris and them, um, just, just nervous, you know. And somebody came up to the DC pavilion dressed as a talent in like a homemade talent thing. It was like a thing. And Bob Harris turned to us and he was like, this one's going to stick. Just be, be aware. And I was like, no, <laughs> whatever. I was still just terrified, you know, about like being on the book. But I remember vividly being like, no, no way. And the thing that I'd say it speaks to is like, when fans go out there and dress like the characters or they, they reply to DC or they make them their voices heard about stuff, things do stick in that regard. And, you know, having it be something that um, has found so many other lives and in, in different medium, I mean, it means the world, you know, to Batman, seeing Batman who laughs in a video game, seeing this, you know, the, it's all, it's just, it's not, it still doesn't feel real. I feel like it's going to take like 10 years away from it to then be able to be like, Oh my God, we made that. And it's on, you're still like, I'm still just so close to all of it still, you know what I mean? That you're still in it. So I will say they were really kind about the game. They invited me out to Cal. I couldn't talk about it, but they invited me out to California about a year and a half ago. Uh, Jim flew me out actually Jim Lee to uh, play it and to look at it and to give some story advice. And they were really cool about it, you know, and it was, partly about owl stuff, but also just about general structure with the, with the bat family and, um, you know, using, making sure Batman's not absent from it entirely and giving some advice. And they were really great aims and the people there, uh, seem super responsive. So yeah, I mean, seeing them in that, they, they certainly like, they look good when I saw them then, but they look really good now. <laughs> it was like, they still had some characters with the black masks and stuff like the TV show. And then now it's all white. I just like, I love it. It's, it's so cool to see, you know, and I loved, I liked the team. The people on Gotham were great too. I mean, Ben McKenzie was hilarious. Like we wound up hanging out at a couple cons. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a huge thrill. It's just, it's an honor. You know I mean? Like you, these characters mean the world to me. I mean, Batman's my favorite character in literature you know, in general, and to have played any part in that um, history, to have like any small brick anywhere in Gotham, especially with the people I got to work with that are my friends, like, you know, it means a lot. It's so strange now, I got to say, like, it's weird, too, because so many of the people I worked with aren't there anymore, not just because of the firings now, but just over the years, you know, like, it's weird. And, and it's such a strange thing, because 
it's like the court, I wrote the court of owls. I was, you know, I thought of that while I was on the, with working with Dick Grayson. And I thought of it as a kind of mystery around Dick Grayson, you know what I mean? About him being uh, a Talon. But the story was kind of like, mm, you know, it was all right. I liked it, but it wasn't, it was good. Like it was going to go to a circus roots and that, and I was happy with it. But it felt um, like it didn't feel like it was really getting it him like it felt like it was not scary enough and then when I knew it was Bruce it suddenly hit me or I was like I'm gonna throw that story out and then I'm like actually why am I so into this idea and I'm like it's a Bruce idea more than it was a dick idea because you in your own life like what you're going through right now it was coming into the city from where I lived out um, outside the city east of the city with my wife I was really unhappy when we first moved out. To, it's, I grew up in the city, you know, on the Lower East Side and moving out to um, uh, far out east on Long Island, you know, learning to car culture and all this was, was really not fun. And I'm not used to being isolated. I like seeing other people around, even if it's not social, being in it together. And um, I'd go into the offices back when they were in New York and DC. And then I'd go to my old neighborhood where I grew up sometimes because my father still worked down there. And uh, it just changed. It was totally different. You know, there's nobody there I knew anymore. And uh, the Court of Owls was like born of that idea of, you know, realizing that uh, your city or the city, you know, only exists because of the people that are there for these fleeting moments. It's just, it's an imagined thing that you make up together out of the physicality of the place. Like it's, it's the lives lived there together at that moment. And nobody knows that except you and the people that share that experience, you know, um, and so Batman thinking he knows the city is this hubris. And so I, that's what I liked about it. And then it doesn't fit Dick Grayson though, because Dick Grayson doesn't think he knows the city. He just, he's just Dick Grayson. And so I was like, but Bruce, that fits Bruce, you know? And so I really dug in and I was like, what if I make the mystery bigger? And I wind it around this idea that there's one thing that will always be a mystery about the court of owls to him in terms of it'll never have like a known leader and the leader that he thinks it is, will that person be his brother or not? Well, he'll never know if that's his real brother or not. And making him struggle with that idea that there's no, nothing known the same way you don't know the city five years from now or five years ago or five blocks out of your territory, you know? Um, and the weirdest thing is coming back to see, reread the Court of Owls for the stuff that's coming out now and having DC feel that way, you know, where um, the people that I came up with Doyle, who got American Vampire in the door for me, you know, uh, uh, Dan DiDio, who for all of our crazy fights and our disagreements and our knockdown, drag out, blow out, like, you know what, you can tear my fucking contract, like fights, um, was still the person that supported me when Warner Brothers and other people there didn't want me to do the Court of Owls and stuff. And many times he, he was in my corner when, um, when like there were other forces at work trying to stop us from doing the stories that uh, we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, um, Mike Martz, that whole office, he, he's gone. Uh, the whole publicity team, you know, from the beginning that was there with me, two publicity teams gone. Uh, all the bosses, you know, Diane Nelson, uh, Paul Levitz, then Diane Nelson, then, you know, Jim's the last one standing. It's like me and Jim, Bob Harris gone, Hank Canal's gone. You know, it's just me, me and, uh, me, uh, me and, uh, I can't even think who was there when I was there at the beginning, who's still, 
Pete Tomasi was there. I mean, me and Greg and, but writing wise, anyway, I mean, there's always like Dan Jurgens and people that are there before me, but I mean, people that, you know, yeah, it's, it's a strange feeling. It's Marie Javens is the, like an Andrew Marina who I work with on metal. Mm-hmm. Marie was promoted to co-editor in chief and she's fantastic. She couldn't be more awesome. I love her. Um, she's just a real friend and, uh, also a, um, a great mentor. And uh, she's been in comics forever. She's done everything. She's like the Dos Equis guy that's like the most interesting man in the world where she's like circumnavigated the globe twice with no planes. She worked with Daniel Johnston, the songwriter. She's all, all crazy stuff that you're like, you did that? She's like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, so it's exciting in the way that um, she's elevated and I love working with her. And that means our stuff is much more... Um, much more easy to get through. Not that it was hard before, but now it's like, you know, super easy. Um, but that said, uh, it's a very strange feeling. Like it's, it's a really weird feeling to, to feel almost like it's time for you to do other things too, because the neighborhood that you grew up in or you came up creatively in doesn't exist anymore in some way. And it doesn't mean what's coming is bad. I and mean, it's not a criticism, you know, it's just, a, it's different. It's like, do you, you know, part of it is again, like going back, like, would you do Superman? Well, go doing Superman meant going back and working with this editor, or that editor, you know, and they're all gone. Like, so it's more like, you know, I'd probably go to Marvel and try some stuff in the next few years if I was going to really recommit to doing a long run or something like that on something. I mean, I would stay and do something at these, I, I you know what, I don't even want to say that because if Marie now I'm just talking like way off the cuff about, <laughs> but I'm excited about the general manager coming in, Daniel Cherry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard really good things. I'm excited about Marie. And if Marie stays and can execute some of the things that she thinks should happen to DC, I think will be a really cool place. And I'd like to be a part of it, but I do have to make the, like a big focus on my creative life right now, my own stuff. So thank you for letting me like lie down on the couch and just like, I feel like it's like this therapist couch where I'm like, making all these like waxing poetic about my, you know, feelings about DC or this or that. So I apologize if I'm like down rabbit holes. No, listen, we live in the weeds. We got a house there. It's real nice. (laughs) But but, uh, Scott, uh, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about, uh, about all of it. It's a pleasure. No, I, 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 I honestly, I'm really excited to finally get to talk to you guys. So yeah, tell me um, when, when I can come back and I'd be happy to do it. Sounds good. We'll take you up on that offer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire, meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. 
Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M. from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. WMQA!